Hello listeners and welcome to the first new pop screen of 2023, the Geek Show's podcast covering the good, the bad and the bewildering, lord is it ever bewildering some weeks, of movies either starring about or by pop stars. I've got a heavy cold and this week I've been joined by... By Rob, hello there. Hey Rob, have you got a cold as well? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. good. I'm all good. Uh, guess what, Graham? though? What? I've just realised something. This is how sharp I've been recently. My yeah. number one of 2022 was a musical, and I just remembered, and I just noticed. That's ridiculous. How did I do that? It's <laughs> a strange new that? world. <laughs> and just for that's... reference, that's uh, Inuo. So. Yes, because uh, if you've been listening to our shows over the last week, we have been doing a, a very thorough rundown of our favourite films of 2022. But that's over. 2022 was literally so last year. Yeah, and not having to watch anything like from there again, it's so refreshing. <laughs> yes. Okay, it can go and piss off that year. We're done with it. It's finished. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're, we're, we're taking a short hop back, aren't we, to 2014 for our first pop screen of uh, 2023. And I suppose my first question is, how grateful would you say you are that we don't do plot synopses on this show? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, because I couldn't. I just couldn't. And being the guest, I guess I'd be in the position where I would have to do it. But no, not in this case. I, I'm I tempted. <laughs> no, no, I won't. Uh, because we are doing Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, the first and, let's be honest, probably only forever film to be adapted from a Thomas Pynchon novel uh, starring Joanna Newsom. Mm. And uh, you're quite a big Joanna Newsom fan, aren't you, Rob? Um, lapsed and then regained. Yeah, because... Just to give context to that, once, uh, you know, my bank balance was looking really, really grim. So yeah. I had to sell all my CDs. And when I did that, there was lots of things that I forgot I had. Yeah. And I think Joanna Newsom was one. And I was listening earlier today. I think it, I can't remember what the album was. It's the free CD one that goes on forever. <laughs> um, and I think, hang on, this is all really, really familiar. This mm. is surreal. It's, hang on. I used to have this. And it was one of those like lovely little warm bits of nostalgia, and yeah, it's it's nice to rediscover something like that, even if it was sort of a self-inflicted total accident. Have one on me was the uh, very long album, was it? Yes, because I listened to it all this morning. Um, that uh, divers, and I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm just going to go ahead and say ease. Why yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. Either. Yeah, I, I listened to Divers. I'd kind of, um, I don't know, I hadn't really explored Joanna Newsom because I was worried I'd find a slightly precious, which I guess is the, the thing that you struggle against when you are accurately described as a harpist. Yeah, it's a it's a life and like obstacle you've really got to get past, isn't it? Yes. And... I, it's accurate, but I don't think it's uh, to a detriment at all, really. Mm. Yeah, I went for Divers because it was the one that was closest to Inherent Vice in terms of its release date, and I wanted to get a sense of where she was at uh, at that mm. point. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. It reminded me a lot of Kate Bush, but not in a way that's derivative. I feel like you're going to yeah. 
start hearing a lot of people who are very derivative of Kate Bush soon. Uh, well, but... I'll go further. I think it's kind of a nice little cross-section of Kate Bush and Bjork, her singing style in particular. I can't remember the name of the Bjork album. I think it was, uh, is it Vesperine? Vespertine, yes, That's my favourite Bjork album. It's in. Um, I think it was Ease. Ease sounds a lot like that. Like the way she sings, she has this spooky goth chick voice. I guess is the easiest way to describe it. <laughs> I mean, in the nicest way possible. I'm not, you know, demeaning goths in any way. No, absolutely not. Um, I mean, we live too close to Whitby to do that and not fear for our lives. Yes, <laughs> that is true. But yeah, it's, I mean, I'd have to sort of delve a lot deeper into it before I could make any particular statements about what her her worldview and her kind of style is. But listening to Divers a couple of days after watching Inherent Vice, I think there's a nice continuity between them. You could see why Paul Thomas Anderson thought that this singer, this harpist, I should say, who hasn't acted before, is a good choice for sort of Yeah, I mean, that album, um, it's very sort of psychedelic pop 60s. Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't remember any album like, uh, artists to, to cite, but... It's that sort of pop music which is eternal. 1960s pop music, all the big sort of, well, all the drugs are being taken, all the <laughs> iconic songs are being written, songs that are still as fresh then as they are today, all the way around today as they are then. Yeah, I, I can go for that. It's a bit. Uh, I listened to that first Joni Mitchell album, which I've just forgotten the name of recently because they remastered it. Uh, when they first recorded it, it was produced by David Crosby when he was absolutely at the depths of his cocaine years, and it is just unlistenably badly recorded. But they did a, a spruced-up version, and it sounds very good. And yeah, there's a similar vibe there. It's a bit like the Incredible String Band, if they had a singer who could sing. Yeah, I, I get the 60s kind yeah. of reference points in it. Yeah, she has that just vibe throughout her career, really. I mean, the cover art at ease also looks like that sort of acid fork. Well, there's so many for, like, for, um, terms that they've thrown at fork over the years. Acid fork, freak fork, whatever you want to call it. It has that vibe, that art cover. The cover art at two ease just makes me think, oh, like, now, if the if the tarot reader puts this one down, it means change, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's fair. But I think I've got to sort of make my case for her, really, because when you think of... My personal opinion of myself is not somebody who likes things like this at all. Mm. I like sort of more abrasive styles of music, but... That's very true, yeah. For me, I think there's one thing that like people who like metal, punk, hardcore, hip-hop, whatever you, you call it, something that they don't really have in their taste of music because they're so single-minded they pursue one thing. That's a palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. And I think everybody needs like a style or a bit of music that they really like, which just is completely fresh from everything else that they listen to. Yeah, I would agree. I'm sort of photo-negative you in that sense. I was listening to some Nine Inch Nails today, and they're like <laughs> my token metal band who I actually like. Yeah. Uh, that's like the one metal band who I'll admit into the hippie poptimist nonsense the daisy age rubbish of my record collection <laughs> well 
in, I don't know why they call it industrial, but I'm sure there's some really laborious means for it being called that. But yeah, mm. sure. Yes. Why not? But uh, I've had an interview with Joanna Newsom where she was talking about being cast in this, and she is friends with Paul Thomas Anderson, as you suspect is, is everyone who's cool who lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> it just seems yeah. to be that sort of arrangement. True. But when he was working on the adaptation for this, he asked her to read some passages of the novel just on tape, just to get a sense of whether a voiceover worked. Uh, and apparently the process was so free-flowing that the first time she realised she was going to literally play a character within the film was when she got a letter asking her to come to a costume fitting. <laughs> okay. Well, he's a subtle one, isn't he? And he's a very yeah. strange character, Paul, Tommy, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. He's mm. He is an enigma. Yeah, because when you read people talk about the set of this film in particular, everyone says it was absolute chaos. You know, it was really loose and freeform. And you think, I can picture the set of The Master being like that. I can picture the set of Licorice Pizza being like that. But this is so close to the novel. And you think to, to get something that is basically a transcribed novel and to make it feel really loose and natural and improvisatory that's a hell of a talent it is as well i mean it just is i don't know how he does it really he's just one of these naturally talented people at everything he does and then you're letting he's like a huge horror fan and he did like this article for i think it was fangoria with uh, jordan peele talking about <laughs> each other's work and yeah i just don't get him but I think that, that works, really. He's unnaturally talented. I think his his gift is always to complicate things in a way that's really productive. Like I mentioned this on the podcast Mark Harrison and I did on Inherent Vice, which is from last year. But if you read his interviews about, Inher- uh, about, sorry, about Licorice Pizza, rather. Ah, yes. Yeah. yeah. If you read his interviews about Licorice Pizza, you would think he was making a very didactic film about how, you know, he wishes everything was like it was when he was a kid. But the film itself doesn't feel like that at all because he's so open to collaborators. Yeah, yeah. And that's the weirdest thing about his his movie. I mean, if you look at it on paper, whether it's um, Licorice Pizza or this, the cast list is insane. Yeah. But nobody feels like a big, big time actor. Nobody feels like a star. Everybody just feels like they're they're doing their little bit and then they're you know getting on with their day, which is a miraculous thing, really, um, mm. for a, a director who basically I don't know he just wakes up and writes something crap on the back of a postage stamp and there you go, Oscar. <laughs> to yes, be, to be so lacking in, well, he just doesn't really seem to have sets that foster those egos, and it's really really weird and this one you just run through the cast list and it's like they just put it's a cameo it's a film full of cameos and yeah he has them doing the weirdest stuff one of his gifts that i think makes him such a great pop screen director is that he always uses people whose background isn't necessarily in major motion pictures you know, okay. if if he's if he's making a film set in a particular world, he will get people from that world. Like the two 
women who were the, the head seamstresses in Phantom Thread were the people who we'd interviewed to get stories about the fashion industry in that era and eventually just thought, wow, they're really charismatic. They should be in the movie. And that seems to happen yeah. all the time in his films. He just seems like such a friendly person who's open to everything and just no ego, which I just don't know how he'd done it. To be as good as he is, whether you like him or not, which some people don't, mm-hmm. uh, to be as successful as he is, and just he just takes it all in his stride. I think maybe one of the things in terms of ego is that he had his baby genius phase early. Like once, when your third movie that you've made when you're about 30 is a three-hour movie starring Tom Cruise. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you, you've sort of, you've peaked at a certain level of accomplishment and now you need to find different things to do, you know? Yeah, this is his post Beatles boom where they just sort of getting high on drugs and making weird experimental albums. Yeah, I mean, very directly. When I was watching Inherent Vice again for this podcast, part of the thing that really intrigued me is that it's less... It looks gorgeous, but it's less overtly flashy than something like Magnolia or There Will Be Blood. You know, it's a very restrained kind of beauty. And I think part of what maybe interests him is that he wanted to take this book, which is a very retrospective look at how the 60s ended, and say, all right, but what if we made this as if it was a hippie exploitation movie from that time? You know, everything's kind of pared back. It's scrappy. It's simple. Yeah, yeah. yeah I get that. And uh, yeah, it's quite uh, pl- charming and pleasing in that regard. I think because it just does. It just feels like a hangout movie. Completely. Yeah. Which I think is his God-given talent. He can just make the best hangout movies. Uh, I had problems with Licorice Pizza, mainly the age difference. Yeah, that's a common one. But besides that, I think it was excellent. But uh, yeah, he just takes it so in his stride. I think every time I rewatch this, I have this thing where I need to stay in that world for a bit longer. I need to listen to the soundtrack a bit more. I need to watch some of the short films he made out of deleted scenes. It's not a film that you can abandon easily. No, no, it's not. I mean, people talk about... I mean, it's, it's technically the same genre, but it's so... Very, very different than Knives Out. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Knives Out, like, oh, I want to see so much more of Benoit Blanc. And I, I do too, but at the same time, he's going to get all sorts. This is yeah. like this lightning in a bottle moment. We're never going to get to see Doc Spartello again, as uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix. And it just makes you want more of it because it's that, that vibe, the characters, the, the world that he's made, it just feels. So relaxed and so low key and low pace. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is pinching. I remember Anderson at the time saying part of the attraction was that, you know, he's a child of the 70s. Pynchon was obviously an adult in the 60s, rather. He's he's a child of the 60s. Pynchon was already grown up in the 60s. And he liked that Pynchon had found a way of writing about what was lost after the 60s that wasn't just oh man you know things were great back when i was young there's more depth yeah. and analysis to it 
And that's, I think, what I like about it, really. We've got this wave of movies. I think Richard Linklater basically mm. has made an entire uh, career out of the fact that he really loves... Uh, I think it's Austin he's from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in the 70s, maybe 80s. Uh, Spielberg is doing it now, too. And yes, yeah. All of it is just so self-indulgent, them looking at their own childhood and... That's such a weird thing. Yeah. I suppose I can kind of understand it happening as a reaction to the pandemic. You know, everyone's indoors. They were wishing they were in better times. So, yeah, fine. Write about your childhood. But it's so weird that every single major director is just Belfasting all over the place now. <laughs> oh, I like that you're calling it that. That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, let's say, for example, I became a big time director. My movie would basically be, be sat in front of the TV in a go cat because I refused to get out of it. And my parents one day decide, <laughs> you've had enough of that go cat. You don't fit. We're throwing it out. And there you go. Stretch that three hours. And <laughs> if it's in that way of movies. <laughs> you, you think we could sell an international audience of the romance of growing up in Middlesbrough in the AC? Yeah, 80s and 90s, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a time, all right? <laughs> but yeah, there was that replica of the Endeavour up in, uh, up in the Cleveland Centre. Great days. Yeah, and then it wasn't there, and then we just forgot about it. Yeah. Those are the times. Yeah. <laughs> Paramount, if you're listening, uh, you can reach us at the following email address. But yeah, this is something very different. And one of the things that I think would get talked about more if, if people talked about Inherent Vice, because they don't, and it's crazy. You know, it's it's perhaps the most acclaimed film director of his generation, directing perhaps the most acclaimed living American novelist, and it's like it never happened. Yeah, I don't get it either. I don't get why this is so hated. I just don't see it. I think there's a there's a complaint about self-indulgence, but it's like, I don't know, man. I, I don't, I can see where it's coming from, but I don't feel it. I think everything in it is so enjoyable that if Anderson was just indulging himself, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't feel this way about this. But uh, let's return to the previous point. This is indulgent, whereas making a Belfast thing, as you called it, isn't. Mm. Yes, yeah. No, that makes no sense whatsoever. I'm sorry. To me, it's always a question of viewpoint. Like, I love Roma, as you know, which mm. and you could make a fair case that that started off this current wave of movie autobiographies. But what I think makes Roma so interesting is that Quaron is looking back at his childhood and thinking, what did this look like from the perspective of that person you know, whose feelings I maybe didn't consider when yeah. I was young. What would that look like from the perspective of someone who isn't me? And you don't really get that in a lot of these other yeah. films in the same genre. And, I mean, I don't know much about Anderson personally, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't actually ever a stoner PI. <laughs> well, no. A stoner, I could buy that. <laughs> Not a stoner PI. But then again, America is a country, all right. So who knows? Yeah, there, there are many second lives in a, the second acts in America's lives, and one of them maybe you go from being a stoner PI to directing boogie nights. It could happen. Well, 
it makes more sense than some career paths. It does, yes. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think this has a really great angle on like the failings of the 60s and how there were a lot of people in it who had the best intentions, but it just slipped through their fingers and fell to the forces of greed. You know, the whole idea about the Golden Fang, that they're like a vertically integrated drug smuggling company who import heroin and then run the privatised medical centres to get people off heroin. I mean, that's just a fraction of what they're doing, but that, that in itself is so sinister. I love it. And it also could be a cabal of den- dentists. It could, it could just be a tax dodge for horny dentists. Yeah, that's the other great thing it about it. It's everything. Everything is the golden fang. I think what I love most about that dentist scene is the, the bit later on where Doc is trying to work out what uh, position Rudy Blatnoid had in the conspiracy and said, I think he might have been fucking his uh, secretary. You think? You think? <laughs> Like, I know your senses have been a bit, pardon the pun, a bit blunted recently, but even I, not a detective, had picked that one up. Yeah, absolutely. And what I think you've got to make a case here, because I, I feel like one of the reasons why people don't like it is because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And I think that it doesn't make any sense makes perfect sense. Yeah, I have a pet theory about this. Cause like, As do I, yeah. Okay, okay, we'll do jubilant theories, shall we? <laughs> well, hopefully not the same one. Oh, that would be very <laughs> anticlimactic. But sure, let's go ahead. Well, I think that the plot of Inherent Vice, and like I said, I've seen the movie, I think, about five, four or five times now. I've read the book twice, so... I have a pretty good grasp on what's going on. I don't think the plot is necessarily any more complex than the actual canon film noirs that it's riffing off. But in those, you tend to have a very dynamic, focused protagonist who's unpicking the mystery. You have a very active, stylish camera that's underlining, drawing attention to all the things you need to notice. And here you've got this very passive, confused protagonist, and this very locked off, straightforward camera style. And it's like the, the hand you hold on to to get through a plot like this is gone. You know, I don't think this is a more confusing or more incoherent plot than The Big Sleep, where famously there is one character in The Big Sleep who is murdered and even Raymond Chandler doesn't know who murdered them. But it it just lacks that sense of drive and purpose that gives you the impression you're watching something that adds up. Yeah, I mean, largely uh, the same as how I feel, a uh, little different, but this is of the same canon of confusing pothead noir as Big Lebowski. Yes. And, yeah. uh, the Big Lebowski doesn't make any sense. And I think, I think it's a case of unreliable un, um, narrator and also it's, it's context. Because usually in a mystery, we enter it at page one and everything is wrapped up in a nice, neat bow. All yeah. convenient by the end of the film. Uh, it doesn't really stray past the edge of the film. It just the film is the entirety of that universe. Whereas in the case of this, I think it's for one, it's telling about four separate stories. 
Yeah. And we only see these separate stories whenever Doc Spartello interacts with a character in that. I mean, uh, I never remember his name. Oh, is it Benicio Del Toro? Benicio Del Toro. Yes. Yeah, He's got another story going on. Um, oh, I always forget his name, but uh, Bigfoot. He's got another story going on. Yeah. And all of this stuff going on, but we only ever see it from Doc's perspective. And then you add on to that the entire history of this character, his interactions with the area, his relationships with the area, and we're dumped in the middle of this storm of ideas. Mm. And to expect it to be a very straightforward mystery where it begins on page one and ends... I mean, I don't think uh, it was brought with that in mind. It was brought as this dizzying narrative of narratives. Completely, yeah. And I think when you're writing a detective story where the hero is going up against the forces of capital who are trying to commodify the hippie dream, you know, you can't be too conclusive about how that ends because the truth is the hippies lost or they sold out or something else that kind of limits his power to get a moral conclusion. In the end, he gets Koi Harlingen back to his family and that's a hard won victory and that's a genuinely touching scene. But the, the bigger stuff, the idea that he can get Mickey Wolfman's mad free housing complex back from out of the FBI's clutches is never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you've seen it five times. Does it make more sense? I think it adds up. I mean, part of why I think it adds up is because, I, like I say, I had read the book twice. And I think I don't think the movie removes anything from the book that stops it making sense. I think everything that functions in the book functions in the movie. But it's just kind of a different way of approaching a plot, I think, when you're reading mm. Yeah, and I'll be honest, just to add on this, I don't think making sense is the be-all and end-all. No. Um, it's it's kind of like this growing thing in film criticism uh, of recent years, like, I don't know, the past five years, where if the character isn't like likeable or your immediate favourite person in the world ever, it's a bad movie. Yeah. Or, or if a mo- horror movie isn't scary, it's a bad movie. And I, I'm not scared by very many horror movies, but I count myself as a horror fan. But I don't count all of those as bad movies. It's just you have to look at things in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's much more interesting to say, you know, what is this film trying to do rather than say, why is this film not doing what I want it to do? Yeah, and this is just one of these movies where I don't think you can ever really grasp it all. Mm, yeah. I think there are some things that are deliberately kind of reaching out into the wild. There are some things that are maybe you're meant to read real world history in, like the vigilant California stuff, where they seem to be using uh, former drug addicts as like undercover agents to go in and disrupt conservative events and make hippie Mm. culture look bad. That's meant to evoke things like co and other intelligence operations in the 60s and I think Anderson and Pynchon want you to recognise that and fill in the rest of the blank like there isn't a scene in the movie where people sit you down and talk you through what Vigilant California does you're just oh, meant to have this other real world conspiracy going in the back of your head and of course there's another one in there too um the use of Black Panthers there yes. in, in one scene. So 
it's it is kind of like Alfonso Cuaron's movies, like Roma, like um, Isamama Tambien. It's a straight, well, it's not a straightforward story, but it's a story. <laughs> but the world around it has just so many contextual clues. Yes, that, yeah. That give you clues if you want them. And if not, in the case of this, at least, it's just great character moments. Completely, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things you've mentioned that I want to just double back and pick up on. And one of them is the character of Bigfoot Bjornsson, played by Josh <laughs> Brolin, yeah. who is, is both fantastically funny and deeply tragic in a lot of ways. You know, he's a man who will never find a resolution for what he wants to do, because unlike Doc, he's limited to working within the law. Yeah. Yeah, he isn't. He's lost a lot as well. Um, he mm. lost his partner. Um, he seems to be hated within the uh, LAPD, mm. and there just seems to be a lot of squabbling in his life. And he takes out all that sort of rage. I mean, there's a scene where his wife interrupts and tells off <laughs> yes. Doc, and it's just so utterly demasculating. Dem- oh, there's a word I'm tripping over. Emasculating. Emasculating. Yeah. yeah, it's one of my tongue twisters. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, it's just it builds up this mythos of this character. He's on TV, he's got extra roles, he's in weird dream sequences for Doc. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He eats all of Doc's pot in a bizarre I greatly enjoy uh, (laughs) Bigfoot's TV career. That is one of the little details from the novel that would have been very easy to cut, but I'm delighted that it's still in there. But is it He's this very masculine character who has no power over his own life. So he's a really compelling character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think he bounces off Phoenix as Doc Spartello beautifully. I think, you know, they are just two of the big personalities of modern American acting. And it's just such a joy to see them butt heads. Every scene, the the motto pancakes. Yes. scene for example just every scene that they share together it's just so sweet you can tell they care about each other but they also hate each other absolutely yeah yeah uh, there's a load of ringers in the cast there's a load of really great people in it i think on this one i was struck uh in terms of performances that maybe haven't made as much of an impact before, but I really love Reese Witherspoon as Penny, the DA's assistant. I think she's yeah, really good it, in this. It was odd. I mean, it's such a nothing role, but you got like a major actor. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? it's it, it's what I mean when I said earlier about PTA just getting these. Nobody feels like a star in his movies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he, he has done his usual thing of getting some surprising faces in. I mean, he gets a lot of comedians to work with him, which is maybe not so surprising when you realise that his wife is Maya Rudolph. So... Who's, again, in it for about three micro scenes. <laughs> three scenes in which the, the point of which seems to be that in her last one, they play a song by her mum off of like her appearance and that that seems to be where that's going but yeah uh i mean in terms of the comedians it's an absolutely barnstorming appearance by martin short which is oh yeah just yeah. incredible um as he's a dentist um but i'd never yeah. want to have my teeth seen by him i'll be honest <laughs> <laughs> 
he seems to be sleeping with everybody and always taking cocaine. <laughs> There's some people who I hadn't seen before in this, which is, is quite an achievement to stand out as a as an unknown character when you're in this cast with Phoenix, Brawling, Witherspoon, you know, major names. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Jefferson Mays, who plays the creepy doctor who shows uh, Doc around the Chris Kyladon Institute. He uh, looks yeah. like something from a 90s underground comic. He's this really <laughs> sort of boss-eyed, sweaty guy, and everything about him puts you on edge. Yeah, and that little scene where he... I can't remember the name of the actor, whether it's a real actor or just a movie that he's made within a movie. I have no idea. I'm not familiar with 50s and 60s cinema. Mm. But when he's mouthing along the character attacking another character for being communist yes. in the United States of America, we do not do communism here. Yeah, it's totally a, it's great. not even a real movie, but it looks so real. It's one of the best old movie pastiches I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, I figured it wasn't real. Or it, it just looks so real, it's so confusing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Jefferson Mays, though. You know the next place I saw Jefferson Mays? I don't. As part of the cast in the 1938 flop musical Daddy's Boy, showcased on that episode of Unbreakable <laughs> Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, oh really? Yeah. <laughs> He gets about in weird places, doesn't he? <laughs> I think that's like his contract. If you make a film or a TV show and you want someone to just do something really fucking strange, I'm here oh. for that. I, you made me think of another actor now. I can't remember what he's called, but he's in um, Us, married to one of the white couple. The male. Oh, Tim Heidecker. Tim Heidecker. He's exactly the same. Mm. Creepy, creepy boy, but he, he gets everywhere. He does, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, releasing music now, I think, Tim Heidecker, which is... Uh, surprised. Yeah. He's an odd dog. But yeah, uh, an absolutely fantastic cast, and you've got Newsome sort of hovering above it all as a character who is barely present in the novel. It's one of the few big changes to the novel that Anderson makes. But Sortilage is kind of like the guardian angel of Doc in this movie, really, isn't she? Yeah, it's it's so weird, because it is ostensibly thinking what he's thinking. Mm. But from a third perspective, and with a female voice, it's it's so many things which you'd think it just tip over the edge. But I don't think I think it works perfect. There, she's so, very verbose, isn't she? Talking about the thermal currents of the karmic megalopolis of Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, well, you hear, you hear her lyrics, and she has a very uh, poetic yes. sensibility. So I think it just came very naturally to her. Completely, yeah. One thing that I noticed about Sortilege that I'd never quite realised before is you see a lot of scenes of Sortilege in the car with Doc. Uh, before Doc drives to like a new location that he's going to mm. investigate. But when Doc is driving on an investigation, of course, he's on his own. And the, it's a wonderful kind of suggestive ambiguity. Like, is this just because Anderson has cut two car journeys together? Or is Sortilege sort of an imaginary friend on these journeys? It's not really clear. I think it's all the better for it, really. I mean, this is a man who saw adult by drugs. 
um, I mean, there's, I think there's a sequence in it where he he kind of loses his mind a bit from being sober. Yeah, um, so kind of. It, it's like Father Ted, the episode in Father Ted when Father Jack suddenly becomes like sober. So what the fuck yes. is that? What's this? And he's on the spoon, and it's uh, it's yeah, that sort of stuff. It has that sort of vibe when he's sober. So maybe, maybe it is. Who knows what's done? He's done to his brain. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Ambiguity, but, I think, works, yeah. One of the other cast members who I can't say much about because I don't know where they are in this is uh, Thomas Pynchon, who Josh Brolin has confirmed is in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be one of those obscure... That's his shoulder right there at the edge of that scene. Well, no one will ever find out, because I don't know if you're aware, the thing about Thomas Pynchon is that there are no photographs of him as an adult in circulation. There are some old yeah. school photographs, but no one knows what he looks like now. It's amazing that he's got such a high profile and being so private. Yeah. Honestly. I think it might be one of those things which is... Although Eleanor Ferrante gets away with it now, I guess. Maybe it's just one of those things where if people love your books, they'll preserve the mystery because mm. it's fun, isn't it? Or maybe he's Banksy as well, I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he's Banksy and Eleanor Ferrante and J.D. Salinger all yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Depends on what day and what hat he puts on. Who knows? I mean, it would not be the most elaborate conspiracy theory that Thomas Pynchon has been involved with, right? Well, with his uh, bibliography, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, but, but apparently he is in there somewhere. I mean, he could be Joaquin Phoenix. If, if ever a character's, if ever a person had a name that sounded like a Thomas Pynchon character, Joaquin Phoenix is it. Yeah, and just his life as well. He's yeah. He quit acting for five years and then came back in a movie and he was a rapper, but he wasn't a rapper. <laughs> He's an odd man, Joaquin Phoenix. He's a very odd man. It's weird how people sort of skate past that, isn't it? That would be a career-defining moment in any other actor's career. Like, if Bradley Cooper did it, people would be talking about how weird that was for decades. But with Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix, it's just like, well, that's another another day at the Joaquin Phoenix face, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that there's wacky actors out there, you know. Not everybody can be aggravating or just non-entities. So, you know. Yeah. I don't know yeah, why so just, uh, Eddie, Eddie Redmayne just raced him in mind there. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, someone's found the third way in between, like, being extremely boring and completely toxic. I'm glad that someone's still flying the flag for old-fashioned Hollywood weirdos. Yeah, there was a lot of them in the era that this was uh, made as well. But, certainly uh, was. Yeah. chased out or blacklisted or... I don't know, they just got a farm somewhere. Who knows with these weirdos? <laughs> <laughs> Or like Shia LaBeouf, they're on their... Is it second or third Redemption tour now? I forget. I think it's third. Yeah. I mean, I, I would simply not be a dick. It's just too hard for some people. It's, <laughs> it could be, but, ah, but I've put so much effort into being one already. Yes, I've done the groundwork <laughs> and it's going to pay off any minute now. 
Yeah. No, not for him. Not for him. Oh, uh, not Jared, Jared Leto? Yeah, Jared, Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Leto, yes. No. I don't know why I brought him up. I hate the guy, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I really love this movie. I, I just... It is that elusive, weird, experimental album in his filmography, isn't it? It's and maybe that feels appropriate, right? Maybe it's yeah. apt that the the film about how all of the promise of the sixties got lost and buried under concrete is the one film from his back catalogue that got swept under the rug. Yeah, is the concept album, which mm. Didn't quite hit the charts quite well, so he went back to make a, a nice pop album of his next. Actually, yes. it would have been after this. Um, uh, Phantom Thread after this, which oh, is. Well, it's more conventional, but still. Yeah, it's... I think so. Yeah. Phantom Thread's the Paul Thomas Anderson movie you can take your mum to, and I mean that in the best way possible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very upstanding citizen. Yes. Mm. Uh, one more musical connection that I feel like I, I have to mention before we wrap this podcast up, but it's not just Joanna Newsom from the rock world in this movie. Okay. You have another of Johnny Greenwood's astonishing scores. Oh, you do, yeah. I mean, it's become so second nature to have one of those in a, in a, in a John, Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You kind of just forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing, really, isn't it? This might be my favourite one that he's done. It's it's an odd one because in some ways it's the most accessible one. It's certainly the gentlest. It doesn't have the abrasive edge that his music for There Will Be Blood does. Uh, it's very soft and melodic, but it sits really interestingly in the middle of something that tends a lot of times towards quite broad, wacky comedy. You've got this score that reminds you of all the loss at the heart of the story. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to have to watch it again now. I mean, this is an infinitely rewatchable movie, and I think because it doesn't make sense and because you have to sort of piece it together, it, it's all ready to be rewatched. But I'll be honest, the score is the one thing that I've never paid attention to. I mean, it's got so many... It's got a soundtrack. It's such a wonderful soundtrack like the first five six minutes it's got like this fuzzed out acid music and it's vitamin just... c by can yeah it's great so, selection so good at sort of setting up a stars and this is the world that this movie occupies and it's just dotted with little bits like that the incidental music it's so incidental it's almost too incidental <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which is which a nice is a good... have. Yeah. It's a good face, isn't it? It's music that fits so well with the tone and mood of the film that you can just miss it. But it is worth pulling out and listening to the whole thing because it's it's so beautiful. I think. I mean, he's has he won an Oscar? He should have won an Oscar for his music. Did he win an Oscar last year for the Power of the Dog? Uh, I forget. Let me just look this up. He did win a few awards. And I don't he... think so. I think the only Oscar Power of the Dog one was um, was uh, Best Director. Yeah, no, no, he didn't. It's strange. He had two exceptional oh, scores that year for Power of the Dog and Spencer, uh, but he didn't win for either of them. You were never really there. That's a great score as well. Yes, he's he's done so many good, amazing scores. You know, you think. 
Radiohead, you've got enough success. You don't really do, do anything else. Yeah, yeah. Set for life. Oh, no, he's just one of the best composers of his generation. No biggie. <laughs> yeah, incredible stuff. The first time he got snubbed, it was for one of those annoying technical oversights because Anderson got him in for There Will Be Blood because he'd heard some of his instrumental work and they'd put out as a solo artist. And quite a lot of that instrumental work is used in the film, but also there's some new score that he wrote. And it fell foul of the Oscars rules that there wasn't mm. enough original music written for the film that they could nominate it. But having bodged up like that, you would think the Oscars would want to rectify that mistake quite quickly, right? Well, you say that, but... I don't think the Oscar committee are very quick at doing anything, really. I mean, the, the, no. the band Will Smith for that. that um, yes. Which is still funny today. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as giving people awards who deserve them, it's just so tone deaf. I do feel like he'll get one one day. But oh, definitely, yeah. I just don't know what it'll take, because they seem to be quite populist in their taste when it comes to scores and I don't think that's the one phrase you could really use for a Johnny Greenwood score. He's quite a uh, rhythmic and atonal. He's all over the place and he's, he's a real modernist, isn't he? Yeah, I yeah. was just looking this up to try and find out who who beat him to the best original score, Oscar. Would you like to have a guess at who who did it? Oh no, probably the help or something. It's so white mace, <laughs> I guess. Uh, no, for for Power of the Dog, sorry, I mean, oh, rather than this, who beats oh, him I don't Power know, of the really. Dog. I can't think of any scores from that year that would be better, really. Yes, Hans Zimmer, obviously it was Hans Zimmer. So boring. For June, which is like, it's not Hans Zimmer's worst score, but it is very much in his sort of, I've made a recording of a ship's foghorn, let's see if we can Paul <laughs> stretch this genre. Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as I see it... um. Hans Zimmer, he's kind of very generic. Yeah. But you go to the, the, the Scar Star and you want some, <laughs> some music and Hans Zimmer's just sort of like, it's what the the shop recommends. It's not like you got to go on like the, past like the little net curtain and go in the back where they keep all the, the sleazy stuff. Nothing like that. <laughs> it's, it's right there next to the tills. Just so I feel like we have sort of backed into comparing Johnny Greenwood's score to like porn now. Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay, right, fair. Just, just as long as we know that's where we're going. Right, that's fine. <laughs> the tasteful sort of porn, when I had that sort of experimental phase of it's it's arty porn, it's it's yes. artistically nourishing porn, it's not, you know, sweaty porn. He's yeah, he's the Wallerian Boricic of soundtrack composers. <laughs> Yeah, he's not Emmanuel or something. He's... Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, well, I think that about wraps it up, right? Uh, have you got anything else you'd like to say? Um, no, no, I think for I've a big enough hole for myself in that closing <laughs> comment. <laughs> Rob, where can people find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on my podcast, the sister podcast of this show, uh, Directors Uncut. Um, coming up next, we've got the second part of um, Ridley Scott with Alien and Felma and the Ways, which is a surprisingly good double bill. My two favourite Ridley Scotts there, I will say. I can afford to say that because I'm not on that episode, so I'm not spoiling anything. I'd agree, honestly. 
I would agree. Good. Nice. Um, but as far as social media, you can find me across all the social media, including the ones that haven't been ruined by Elon Musk. Uh, uh, uncut Robcast. That's uncut R-O-B-Cast. Uh, yeah. And coming out tomorrow, uh, subscribers to our Patreon will get a bonus episode of this very show in which me and Mark Harrison discuss the many mysteries of Glass Onion and its absolutely barnstorming Janelle Monáe performance. Yes. But uh, after that, it'll be a fortnight before we see you again with The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson, Julian Temple's documentary about the late Dr. Feelgood guitarist. Until then, I've been Graham. And I've been Rob. And we'll see you soon. Thank you.